This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Wendy Hunter-Barker. I'm the Assistant Dean here at the School of Global Policy and Strategy, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's webinar on Global Impacts of COVID-19, How Nations Respond. We're very pleased you're able to join us for the second installment of our new series. And just to take a moment for those of you not familiar with our school, GPS was founded in the mid-1980s. It's a professional school focused on the Pacific, although the fulcrum for international relations had been considered to be rooted around the Atlantic, so at the intersection of the U.S. and Europe, our founding dean and faculty knew that the relationship between the U.S., Asia, and the Americas was where the field was heading, and they were right. GPS is now a world-renowned public policy school offering a variety of degrees. Our three most popular are a master's in international affairs, a master's of public policy, and a one-year executive degree. We have over 10 active research programs and centers, and our faculty come from a number of different disciplines, predominantly political science, economics, and management, but we also have faculty from physics, engineering, and neurobiology, to name a few. Today, we're delighted to have with us two of GPS's esteemed faculty, Professors Stefan Haggard and Ulrika Sheda, and a good friend of the school's Ambassador Rich Verma. And without further ado, I will turn this over to Professor Haggard. Thanks very much for getting us going, Wendy. Uh, my name is Stefan Haggard. I direct the Korea Pacific Program at, at GPS. I spent the last 10 years uh, looking at North Korea pretty closely, but I've written on the political economy of East Asia. And we're really pleased to be joined today by two, one of additional faculty members, as Wendy said, and also Rich Verma. Rich uh, had a career in the State Department, served as Assistant Secretary, but most uh, important for us, served as U.S. Ambassador to India from 2014 to 2017. Ulrika Sheda is a professor of Japanese business here at GPS. She has the forthcoming book entitled The Business Reinvention of Japan uh, and Why It Matters for the Region, and she is going to talk to us about Japan. And then I'm going to wrap up by looking at some developments in the countries outside of China, um, Korea, Taiwan, and Southeast Asia. Those of you who are interested in our views of China on this question might want to look at the recording from last week in which we had Deb Seligson, Susan Shirk, and Victor Shu talk about the implications of COVID for the U.S.-China relationship. Rich, would you like to get us going? Yeah, sure. Uh, Steph, thank you. Um, want to make sure you guys can hear me okay. And let me just uh, share the screen here so we can get started. Hopefully, hopefully everyone can see that. Uh, okay. Great. So, um, Steph, I'm going to talk about India, as you said, and, and um, really, I'm going to try to do three things here. I'd like to talk about India, and um, but I want to start with just t taking a step back and talking about Asia, just from not only as being the epicenter of the current epidemic, but also uh, a place that we actually think could be the epicenter of the recovery uh, as well. And I think it's, it's an important juxtaposition, and it's happened uh, very quickly. And then finally, I want to talk about some key takeaways uh, as well. And I assured Steph I would do all of this in 10 minutes or less. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to plow through this uh, very uh, quickly. 
So let me just go to the, the first slide. And I'm going to go back here because I think it's important uh, just to remember how quickly things have moved uh, over the last three months. And this is a, this is a map uh, taken from uh, January 30th when we really were talking about Asia as the epicenter of the pandemic. We had six cases in the United States, China had uh, almost 10,000 cases. And we were really looking at this from the U.S. perspective as something over there that was happening in Asia. This was an Asia problem. This was a Wuhan uh, district and, and province issue. And of course, uh, we know by now, if I go to this next slide and we, we really fast forward to the current, how dramatically things change. So we went to Asia being the epicenter of the pandemic to Asia leveling out and the United States and America being the epicenter of the pandemic in just a very, very short period uh, of time. We're now at 640,000 cases. Of course, Europe has been overrun with cases. But there is a really interesting uh, country here that you'll see that has about 12,400 cases, and that's, that's India. And I think before we make the judgment that, that Asia has kind of beaten this, uh, we really have to see how the story in India plays out because the scale of what could happen in India is so uh, dramatic. But I, I just thought it was important to see this shifting. Now, why do we talk about Asia as a, as a possible center of recovery? And Steph, I think you'll get to some of this. But this is just, when we talk about flattening the curve uh, or containing the number of cases, we see what's happened in Taiwan and Singapore and Indonesia. We see South Korea doing a good job. And we even see China has leveled out uh, under 100,000, around 85,000 cases. Now, obviously, some questions about the accuracy of the information that we're getting. Um, but again, the numbers have been under control. And so we start to look at Asia now. Can they come out of this, bring our global economy back, beat this public health crisis? What lessons can we learn? So, so very, very important and valuable lessons uh, coming out uh, of Asia. When we look at India in particular, um, you know, it, it, it's, there has been such a, such a decisive steps taken, and, and I'll certainly cover that. But again, only about 12,000 uh, cases or so thus far. Now, there is a significant debate in the public health community about whether they've actually tested enough people. And you see in our column there that we left tested blank because the tested data had been so uh, hard to come by. Just just today, we were able to come up with about 220,000 people in India have been tested. Uh, that's about 177 people per million, right? So not very many people tested. There are some who, in the public health community who think that these numbers are actually much bigger, that there is a much bigger problem. Uh, but it, I, I think it remains to be seen what happens in the next couple of weeks. But clearly, the economic impact has been huge. Uh, the forecasted GDP is now at about 2%. That's down from 5%, which was already down from 8%. So a big, uh, a big toll taken. Unemployment, uh, upwards of 23%, essentially because the country's in lockdown. The stock market down 25%. The manufacturing and services index uh, 
another economic indicator down about 14%. So pretty severe economic impact, but the public health impact thus far has not mirrored Iran or Italy or Spain, the UK or, or the United States or, or China. So it is helpful just to look at the steps that they've taken. Um, and again, they've, they've taken most of these steps in the month of March. First case wasn't until January 30th. Uh, then there was the first uh, uh, death in March, started suspending uh, visas, de- declaration of a national disaster in, in middle of March, closing of schools. But it wasn't until March 24th that the prime minister uh, implemented a national lockdown. And we have not seen a national lockdown in any country, let alone the size of India. Uh, And and so it's been very, very dramatic, uh, very, very strong. Uh, One of the ministers the other day called it kind of a ruthless uh, containment strategy. And, and, uh, you know, again, if you look at the numbers, you could argue, well, uh, maybe that is exactly what needed to happen. Uh, and then the prime minister just addressed the, the country on, on Tuesday and extended the lockdown for another two weeks. Now, there are some exceptions. There are some discussion about a phase reopening. But right now, 21 days uh, has, you know, three weeks has gone to five weeks. So it's been very, very uh, comprehensive response. As I said, minister called it a, a ruthless uh, containment uh, measure. It's by far the most imp- comprehensive steps taken by any government. These next two weeks, as they roll out more testing, are going to be really critical because India as the tinderbox is what people worry about. There has been a severe impact on migrant workers and those in the informal economy. A lot of the migrant workers were caught without being able to get to their homes. We saw the pictures and videos of these people trying to travel hundreds of, of miles. And again, unlike the United States, the, the, India has a federal system, but they have exercised very strong direction from New Delhi. No state can do any less than the central government uh, mandate. They can do more, but they can't do less. And that's certainly been something we should, we should perhaps watch and potentially learn from. A lot of debates about what's essential and what's not essential. Uh, you know, it was easy 21 days ago to say, if you work in the medical sector, that was essential. But think about all the different uh, lines into the medical sector, food service, IT service, uh, clothing, um, everything that supports the medical sector, then you then had to make exceptions for that. So that's going to be ongoing when we think about what's essential and not essential. On the darker side, you know, problems with misinformation, problems with communalism, some targeting of certain religious groups, some privacy concerns about contact tracing and using your digital footprint about who you've been in contact with. And I think those, those problems are certainly not gonna go away uh, anytime soon. But overall, strong marks uh, for decisive, risky, and certainly, yes, ruthless uh, measures. So the, the issues to watch and the, and the key takeaways. Uh, as we started, you know, the, could this be an Asian-led recovery? And, and these, these takeaways are about India, but a bit broader as well. I think that really depends on whether they can prevent 
the second wave. And we've seen some problems in Japan, in Singapore, potentially in, in China. And again, India will be key. If India gets it under control, then I think you can, you can make that argument about Asia being the potential, the, the potential place in the world for recovery. Accurate information is going to be essential as well. Another takeaway, supply chain diversification away from China will continue. It had already been continued. It had already started, right? It had started because of the trade war. It had started because Chinese wages were up. It had started uh, because consumers are more discerning. It had started because companies wanted to take a little less risk. Well, it's going to continue even more given this uh, current crisis, and there's going to be even more demand to bring production back home. Uh, similarly, you've got hundreds of American companies that manufacture in India, in the medical device space, in the pharmaceutical space. And I think once we get through this crisis here, I think once we have a chance to do a kind of 9-11 style commission report, I think people are going to say, are we ever going to be short of ventilators again in the future? Are we ever going to be short of personal protective gear in the future? I think the answer to that is no. And that means supply chains and inventories that are really focused around the four corners of the United States, which may mean pulling some of that manufacturing out of India. Obviously, nationalism and protectionism on the rise. We see that here. We see that around the world. Bigger debates about globalization, immigration. And we've seen some countries, look, exploit this situation to gain greater control. Look at what Hungary did Look at what's happened in the Philippines and in other places where they have used the crisis to consolidate uh, power. Final two things I would say, no one, as much as we can prognosticate, no one really knows the shape or length of the economic recovery, but I think everyone is expecting a very tough second quarter, a difficult course of the end of the, through the end of the year, and 21, 20, 2021 could actually see uh, a big rebound. And the, and the final point, you know, we covered a lot of negative information. The final point, and maybe this is just the, the hopeful side of me, maybe we will actually see that we can't solve these problems by ourselves. And that, you know, whether it's building a wall or keeping people out, that's not the solution to these issues. And that it really requires international co cooperation, increased understanding, uh, humanity towards others, the fact that the G20 or G7 really have been on the sidelines for this crisis is staggering uh, to me, that we have no international framework to govern export controls or pharmaceutical supplies, let alone the humanitarian crisis that this is. Should India want to play a leader in global health security and international institutions? It certainly has an open pathway to do that, but it, that remains to be seen. And Stephen, I think I'm a minute over, um, and I will stop there and look forward to the discussions. Rich, that was really great. And as you all see, a number of these themes are gonna come out in, in my presentation, I'm sure, and Ulrika's as well. Thanks for teeing us up, Rich. Ulrika, do you wanna take us uh, to Japan? Sure, thank you. So um, let me share uh, just a few PowerPoints on my end as well. Um, so I was in, in Tokyo uh, as a visiting uh, research at a government research institute uh, the first three months of this year. So I was actually in Japan. 
Um, and one of the things, I have to figure out how to, okay. So, um, so I came back with a strong, you know, I was reminded of Tolstoy that each and every country that we're talking about here is really unhappy in its own way about this. And com countries are taking measures that are very different. And I think one of the things, uh, one of the points that I uh, would like to, to make in my 10 minutes here is that we probably need to withhold judgment on what is the right or wrong thing to do uh, for a long while. Uh, until we actually know um, why countries do what they're doing. And, um, and still yet we have some frameworks that allow us to study these differences across countries. And I would like to briefly introduce uh, tight loose theory, which allows us to get a little bit of a sort of a conceptualized understanding of why countries may differ in their responses to this crisis. And that will end up on uh, some notes on what the Japan specific situation is right now. Okay, so tight loose theory is a, is a uh, looks at the social norms of behaviors across countries and measures the consensus of what is the right thing to do in a certain situation and the tolerance toward deviant behavior. And this is research that has done very uh, has been done very carefully out of the University of Maryland. Uh, and what it shows is that there are persistent differences across countries in how people behave uh, in a given situation. And there are some reasons why there are these differences, and it would be too long to get into this. But uh, the takeaway is that this, these differences result in predictably different societal preferences of what we should do at time of crisis. And what I've given you here is a distribution of a number of countries that uh, Michelle Gelfand and her team at the University of Maryland have uh, tested on this. And so uh, what you see is that the Asian countries are, uh, for reasons that are interesting, and we can also discuss, at the, at the tight end of, the, um, of this distribution, whereas the United States and the Anglo-Saxon countries are looser. What that means uh, is that uh, when we have a situation where somebody might say the right thing right now is to behave in ways that allow social distancing, then uh, people in Japan in particular uh, will actually do this because nobody wants to be the dude that didn't do what was asked to do and nobody wants to stick out and everybody wants to be considerate. So uh, I'll come back to what that means for the Japanese situation. Um, uh, in Japan, we actually have uh, uh, had an interesting uh, test case, which was the Princess Diamond cruise ship, which up to this day gives us the best data yet of what we might be dealing with. Uh, this cruise ship, you may remember, docked in Yokohama on February 4th, 2020, and all 3,711 people on that ship were tested, okay? And there were uh, 2,700 uh, passengers and the other were crew, the crew were a little younger, uh, the passengers a little older. What they found is that out of these, the entire um, you know, number of people on the, on the ship, 20% were infected and 0.4% died, which might have been a little bit on the low side. However, the median age of these people that passed away was, was fairly high and, and there were no children on board. And so um, 
so the Japanese took away from this a sense was, okay, so 20% will get this and maybe 1% will die. Now, whether that will turn out to be true for the entire world remains to be seen, but that was the mindset with where the Japanese government went into the crisis because this happened very early, right? And out of this resulted a Japanese response to the crisis that is referred to as the cluster buster response. And uh, what that meant is that um, the Japanese government decided not to test broadly uh, for, I think, very good reasons, uh, but that they would be, uh, would engage in very su in super detailed tracing and quite draconian quarantine measures for those that were actually found to have been in contact with somebody. So they went into these clusters and closed down clusters, but left the rest of the country pretty much to what is called self-restraint. Um, so why did they not um, roll out a more, you know, uh, widespread testing net? Is that in the Japanese setting, if you were to announce people should get tested, literally everybody would rush to the hospital. And that was not seen to be a good thing to do, at least in early February. Uh, one of the reasons, by the way, is that Japanese houses tend to be too small for isolation so that it wasn't even clear what a countermeasure would have been if somebody would have been found to be positive. Would you send them back home? You can't do that. Keep them in the hospital. It would overload the hospitals. Now Japan is using hotel chains for uh, quarantine purposes, so we will see how that's going. All right, so as I mentioned, I was in Japan. Uh, this is the Japanese experience curve here. Um, let me just run you through this uh, very briefly. So the first case in Japan was a Tokyo cab driver, no less, on January 31st. Um, and this led to this first cluster buster approach of going in and looking who this cab driver had been in contact with. And then also very early on, there was a ban of travelers from the Hubei province, because this was, you may recall, at the time of the Chinese New Year celebrations and a lot of tourists were expected. Um, by mid-February or late February, about 100 people were found to be infected in Japan. The emperor's birthday was canceled. That was a huge step uh, because it, was the, it would have been the emperor's 60th birthday and so forth. Uh, so there was a cancellation of public events. Self-restraint became the new motto. Stay home if you can. Use a mask. Sanitize. Uh, and on February 27th, all schools were, were shut down. This was, uh, you know, a really early, very um, important step because it brought home to people that we're getting serious about this. We're not going to tell you to stay home, but do it if you can. And by the way, your children are home, so you better find a solution to that. By mid-May, um, the laws were amended to allow the government to um, announce special emergencies, uh, but then not much happened there were less than 500 cases. So there was a beautiful weekend on the 20th of March and the cherry blossoms were peaking and the sun was out and the winter was over. And so everybody went out to view the cherry blossoms. I was one of them. And so, um, and that was, was not a good thing to have happened. Uh, uh, the Tokyo mayor on the 25th warned of an explosion and said, we'll do a stay home weekend. There's an interesting, um, 
thing between the governor and the prime minister. And uh, as you might know, then a few days, a week ago, uh, emergency was declared. This morning, uh, the prime minister declared a national emergency. Uh, the challenges there are that there are no penalties and there's still some nightclubs and restaurants open. So, so Japan is right now not in a good spot. But here's some interesting data, or what I think are interesting data, and that is that uh, you've seen uh, these larger numbers before. So what we have here is the confirmed cases and the deceased, and then the case fatality rate in percent, and then the death per uh, million people. And Japan's death rate is happily so far still very low, which has led to a lot of, you know, head scratching, you know, what is this? Is there something we can learn from Japan or is Japan just lucky? Or what might be explanations of why this is? And uh, so I'm looking at this 1.5 number. And so uh, explanations range from uh, the effectiveness of this cluster buster approach, which may be reaching its limits, um, another data point that's interesting is in Japan, the largest incidence is currently still with younger people. Uh, this is similar to Germany, where the skiers got infected first because they, they caught this in some ski resort. Uh, in Japan, it's returning students from Europe. It's young people that think they're immune and they go to the karaoke bar. Um, there is a theory also that obligatory uh, BCG vaccinations are helpful in this. There is no medical substantiation of this, but it's a theory that is going around. And uh, the luck element combined with the social distancing, um, the, the allergy season set on early this year in February. And so masks were everywhere and sanitizers were everywhere and maybe the social distancing was helpful. Um, and uh, there are those that think that the, the Japan being a tight culture as it is, that people are doing what they're asked to do. And they are staying at home and they are prepared and they have their fridges filled. And so, um, so at least that was the story until recently. But now, of course, we have um, exponential growth setting on in Japan as well. And I think that... Um, the two challenges that Japan has right now, and I'll end on that, is that the J Japanese mindset of disasters revolves around earthquakes. Japan has 1,500 earthquakes a year, and everything that has to do with disasters is set up around community response to earthquakes. This is now the opposite. Um, and the opposite, Japan is actually not prepared for. Uh, hospitals are very narrow, they have multi-use multi rooms, which is at, at the time of an earthquake would be the right thing to have. But let me also give you this data point that I think we need to appreciate. The Tokyo metropolitan area has 38 million people, uh, which is the population of the state of California. And it is the size of the city of Los Angeles. So imagine all of uh, California residents all in Los Angeles. And that results in a population density that um, ambassador, uh, you might say uh, India can challenge that, but uh, it, is, it is up there. And so having everybody at home is a great thing to do, but the houses are tiny and, um, and the system is not set up for that. And so um, I'll end on that uh, somber note that uh, Japan is actually right now 
really putting on a fight to contain this and whether they can do that is, is a big question mark. Thanks very much, Orga. Well, um, as you'll see, I'm going to pick up on a, um, a number of the themes here uh, that have already been raised by, by Rich and, uh, and Ulrika, and I just wanna check that you can now see the screen. Can someone confirm? Yeah, good. Okay, so uh, what I wanna do is I wanna talk about some of the country cases in East and Southeast Asia and just focus in on some lessons. But I do wanna say uh, or underline something that Ulrich has already said, that I think a judgment on the way to do this, we're still away from understanding what works. And I think one of the things I'm gonna say is there are many ways to get this right, just like there are many ways to get it wrong. So uh, first let me give a shout out to two of our great graduate students, Corey Rogers and Liu Yajang, who have helped me track this. And this is data we've put together which shows the days since the 100 confirmed cases were reported. And as you can see, as some of Rich's data had, this is a, your logarithmic scale, where each of these is a multiple of the, the, the previous level. And I want to start with South Korea. Um, and notice that South Korea and, and China and the United States all had this very steep ramp up of cases, but South Korea has been targeted as one of the, the good places or places done relatively well because this is the classic flattening of the curve where you see this turn down in the number of new cases. Um, and inter it's interesting to con contrast this actually with Japan because Japan has ended up with roughly the same number of cases but the, the path, as, as Ulrich described, it was more gradual and steady going up, and that curve hasn't yet dropped down, but they've ended in the same place. So the first case in South Korea appeared at the end of January. Um, there was a particularly vi uh, virulent cluster in a millenarian uh, religious group in the city of Tegu. Uh, that really contributed to this early ramp up. And the, the, the Korean strategy was in some sense like that of Japan's in really trying to focus on isolating these clusters and breaking them. Um, two things strike me about the South Korean strategy is particularly interesting. One is very early the government formed a, a group uh, or led a group of private sector firms in the pharmaceutical industry to get testing ramped up. So very rapid response to try to get the private sector involved in the testing, generating tests. And I'll show you data on how they tested fairly aggressively. Um, but then um, the other thing was that the uh, mayor's outbreak, which had hit South Korea particularly hard, had led to some changes in Korean law, which allowed the government to access not only uh, metadata from phones, but also credit card data. And so one of the interesting discussions around the Korean response has been what the tolerance for that kind of data sharing. But what this allowed the government to do was essentially identify not just areas where there were clusters, but down to the individual level and inform uh, the public in a very targeted way about where there were cases. And once people were quarantined, they were required to download an app, which actually tracked their physical location. 
So a, a tremendous use of information technology to down to the individual level, but also with a corresponding debate about whether that, you know, that violated privacy or it was appropriate thing to do in a crisis like this. So I think this is going to be an issue that will come up repeatedly about how technology can help, but also whether there are limits on what we would deem acceptable. I mean, imagine the United States having the government uh, have access to not just metadata uh, on us, but, um, but down at the individual level. The big uh, success case, I think, I think this is now viewed as unambiguous as Taiwan, only 395 cases here. Uh, and Taiwan, I think, and Hong Kong as well, are probably on a path now to what we would call complete suppression, which would mean getting new case levels down to literally zero per day. And here, the external travel ban played a very important role in Taiwan, as well as luck. The fact that there are several hundred thousand Taiwanese working on the mainland um, on any given day made the authorities particularly conscious of what was going on in Wuhan. And so you saw very quick movement, not to ban travel back to Taiwan, but just to make sure that people were tested and screened coming in. And here again, you know, very interesting lessons from big data. Uh, after its democratic transition in the mid-80s, Taiwan moved to develop a national uh, healthcare system, a big departure from the previous period. And very quickly, they were able to integrate national health records with immigration and customs records to be able to track every individual that was coming in, the travel histories against, against health. And again, what this permitted in both South Korea and Taiwan, I think, is a much more targeted ap approach to closings than we've seen elsewhere. So the advantage of testing, contact, contact tracing, and quarantine is partly that you avoid the necessity of these very large uh, scale measures, the national lockdowns, which have been such a hit to overall uh, economic activity. And again, uh, just to, to make a point that I think uh, um, Ulrika has made and really underline it, if you look at Japan, the tests per, mi per, per million are extraordinarily low compared to South Korea. But look at Taiwan as well, you know, very much lower testing. And I think the lesson here is it's not how much testing you do, it's what you do with the testing to make it effective. I think this is just a you know, an obvious point that, that, that emerges from this case. Japan is no worse off than South Korea in terms of total deaths with a fraction of the testing. So I think we have to get smarter. It's not just testing, it's what you do with it. Now, let me turn briefly to Southeast Asia. Um, there are a couple of storylines here. Um, this scale is a little different because you can see the days since the first 100 confirmed cases were really in this 30 or 40 day range. And uh, let me point out here, Singapore has a trajectory which is actually quite similar to Japan's on the previous slide. That is a lower slope here, indicating lower growth rate, but also not completely turning it. And those of you who have been following the crisis know that in the last three or four days, week, um, Singapore has gone to a national lockdown. They call it a circuit breaker action. Tremendous concentration of cases in worker dormitories in Singapore, Malaysian workers, 
And uh, this, you know, indicates to me something I think we all know is that this virus definitely has a class dimension to it. These workers are very vulnerable. They're in these um, dormitories where they're uh, sleeping 10 to 12 a room. The lockdown had this perverse effect of actually expanding the, the reach of the virus in Singapore. And so you, even though this is a tremendous uh, high quality health system, semi-authoritarian government, high capacity to act, it's still possible to get things wrong. Um, and, and, you know, Singapore has really been struggling. But let me focus on the Southeast Asian cases, because the one that worries me the most is Indonesia. And here, I really want to pick up on an important point that Rich made about poverty and informality. Because remember, up until this point, the crisis has been overwhelmingly in China, which for all practical purposes has to be viewed as an advanced industrial state in terms of its capacity to respond, the United States and Europe. But we really haven't yet seen what's going to happen in countries where, that are basically just poor. You know, Indonesia is a middle-income country to be sure, but the healthcare system is very much weaker than those in a Japan or a Singapore or a Hong Kong. And here in Indonesia, we've seen the epicenter in Jakarta, um, but Jakarta, which city of over 10 million population, probably has 2 million informal sector workers in sectors like construction. And in past financial crises, like the one I looked at in 1997-98, when the crisis hit, informal workers in the cities went back to the countryside. And that served as a kind of social buffer, um, a social insurance scheme that protected them against the, the financial hit. But now in this crisis, that travel back to the countryside can be catastrophic because basically you have the epicenter just seeding the rest of the region. And one of the reasons Indonesia has been struggling is because Ramadan is coming at the end of the month and the clerics, I think, had just were grappling with this whole issue about whether to let people go back for Ramadan to their villages or whether to stay in place and what they would do if they stayed in place. So um, this question of internal movement and particularly people who are in the informal sector and how the poor are affected by this crisis, I think this is something we haven't really fully grappled with yet. And um, I think Prime Minister Modi was completely right, given the nature of his country, to move towards quite drastic action. Because if you have people moving around in a country like that, where you've got shanty towns in the large cities, the possibility for catastrophic spread is really high. Let me just shift gears uh, in my last uh, couple minutes here to some of the economic issues, because obviously this is a crisis which has both medical and, and economic dimensions. And just pick up and amplify a point made by Rich about the recovery. Notice that uh, this is the, these are projections that the IMF World Economic Outlook came out with just uh, a week ago. And notice that what we're seeing is the countries of East Asia maintaining at least potentially near positive growth. And China, again, being a kind of key player here in not just the recovery from the virus, but from the world economic um, recovery that's going to be needed. I mean, this is obviously a big hit to total output in China, but it's still positive. 
And you compare that to these projections that the IMF is now making about Japan, minus 5%, Taiwan also obviously adversely affected um, for, for reasons we can talk about. And this was interesting. I was looking at the IMF projections for the ASEAN 5. A week ago, they said minus 0.6. Yesterday, they already downgraded that to minus 1.3. So this is a rapidly changing game. Notice that they're anticipating a rapid recovery here, but look at the differences with the United States and the Euro area. You know, Japan, the U.S. and the Euro area, we're going to see very large declines in total output. And China, you know, again, differentiating itself from the United States, effectively distancing itself from the United States if it can maintain growth rates that are in this range. So a lot is going to hinge on on, I think, East Asia and how quickly it revives. Now, let me close by just saying a few things about trade, because if there's one feature of the Asia-Pacific which is most distinctive, it's this incredible growth of interregional trade and these very tightly calibrated global production networks that Ulrika has written about in her you know, really interesting new book, how Japan has positioned itself within these networks other countries have positioned themselves in these networks. A country like Malaysia, 80% of its exports, 80% of its exports are in parts and components and assembly. You know, these are countries which are very heavily dependent on, on trade in, in these global supply chains. And if we look at the way this crisis has unfolded, you know, it started on the economic front as partly a supply shock. Because what we don't, you know, I don't think is adequately appreciated is that Wuhan and Hubei more generally were one of many, um, you know, parts of the Chinese economy or locations in the Chinese economy that were, had these dense international production networks. For example, Korean automobile manufacturers relied on what was going on in Wuhan. The electronics sector did. And earlier in the week, we got this very positive news that first, first quarter China trade only fell by about 6%. The markets were anticipating a much sharper fall off. But even if Asian supply chains rebound now, the question is, where is demand? Where is demand? And obviously, demand in North America and Europe is just collapsing very rapidly, as we see from the unemployment numbers. So my closing plea on this is that given the fact that we've got these other headwinds coming from the pandemic itself, it's going to be very important for the U.S. to think about the value of continued trade restrictions. You know, do we want to continue the trade restrictions that are part of the trade war? Those weren't rolled back as a result of the first uh, agreement between the first phase agreement between China and the United States. Those strike me at this juncture as being headwinds, particularly when you've got a service uh, sector, which is not going to hold up as it did in 2008-9. Services have been hammered, airlines, tourism. And I think this raises this larger question that Rich raised that we should discuss which is, does, does the COVID-19 virus pretend a greater decoupling of the United States from these East Asian production networks, either because of continued trade conflict or because of just risk mitigation that firms and the government are going to say, look, we have to be careful about our dependence on these supply chains given, given the risks. 
So let me stop there, uh, Wendy, and let's um, see if we can go to uh, some questions. Let me pop this open. Okay, um, so Nina Gibbs asks, it'd be great to hear more about what is meant by testing, since this is such a pivotal piece of the puzzle. I believe we're all assuming that the COVID-19 virus testing is a standard process that is black and white results. However, is that the case? How are test results reported and to whom? How can we find out more specifics? Uh, Rich, do you want to take a stab at that? I, I know you've been following this closely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, you, um, I think you touched on it, though. Um, uh, both of you touched on it with your examples about Japan uh, as well, not doing that much testing. India has done uh, very little testing. And in fact, they're quite sensitive to the critique about uh, not doing that much testing. But they also then point to the numbers and say, look, um, the other steps we have taken uh, have worked. And in fact, we are going to concentrate on these hot zones. We, are, we have the data, we have the surveillance about where we have six or greater cases in a neighborhood or in a district, and we can go in there and really concentrate our effort. In a country like India, it's not practical to test hundreds of millions of people. And I think that's true. So um, I think we're good. And look, I've heard in the United States, people say, until every single American is tested, we're not going to get our arms wrapped around this. I don't think that's practical either. And I'm not, you know, I'm no public health expert. So I think we've got to look at, I think these lessons that both of you have talked about in East Asia in particular are really fascinating. And we'll see if India gets this right, because may, there may be a smart, much smarter way to do, um, to do the testing. We simply can't test every single person. So let's see, let's see if these countries have the mix right. Right. Great. Uh, I'll come back to you on this, Orca, but I want to take another question here. Deb Seligson, a PhD here from uh, a GPS, says, why aren't we focusing more on Vietnam? And if I can, if you'll indulge me for a second, let me just go back because I didn't talk about uh, Vietnam much, but I think it raises um, interesting issues. So let me just show you quickly the data on Vietnam, because look at this. Look at this. Um, you know, a very rapid response in Vietnam, partly again because it had been hit by earlier uh, rounds, uh, both SARS and H1, uh, uh, H5N1. Um, but there's also this question, which I think we're going to be debating going forward, about the pros and cons of what state socialist economies have done. I mean, in this case, yes, um, you know, it's very clear that Vietnam responded extremely aggressively. They're now on national lockdown, I believe. They were early quarantining a whole part of the country where there had been virulent outbreak. But then the question is always, do we trust the data? You know, and I think that's going to be a case, you know, a question that we pose everywhere. But with some of the state socialist economies, I think that debate is going to be a really central one. Do we believe the Chinese numbers? And I know, Deb, you've, you've spoken on this yourself, that you know, they're probably underestimating the, the, the cases. But I think we do have to look at Vietnam right now as um, being uh, successful. Uh, let me go to the next question. Add, add something uh, on, just wanted to add something on Vietnam. The one, the one issue I think we also have to watch out for is um, what happens in the information space. So you mentioned the accuracy of the information coming from the government, but there's also 
I think in some of the nations, a tendency to go after those in civil society, in the press, on social media, uh, you know, I think it, it is it may, perhaps in the eye of, of the observer as to what is misinformation and what is a critique of the government. And so that has, that has created a whole set of challenges uh, about can you critique a current, you know, a, a sitting government's approach and so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, yeah. If I have a chance to come back to this on another question, the whole question of whether governments, uh, semi-authoritarian governments are taking advantage of COVID to expand their powers is also the piece of this uh, in countries that are not openly authoritarian. Next question is to Ulrika. It's natural to assume that the new Japan firms are better prepared for realities of the pandemic, like teleworking, than the old Japan firms. Do you think this is a correct assumption? Is it consistent with what you observe? Yeah, so let me just explain the terminology there, which comes out of my previous book, actually. So uh, the new and old doesn't refer to age, but to mindset. Right? And so as my students had to kind of go through the pages of that, we made a differentiation between the old mindset of Japanese companies that are like we knew them in the 1980s and the new Japan companies are um, m more aware of the need to be more global, uh, quicker, more nimble and agile in their, in their competitiveness. So uh, the question is, uh, is a fantastic question uh, because that's exactly what we're seeing. The Japanese companies have long had the system of lifetime employment where the, we have these images of these man and the subway, they slept to work in the morning and then they very exhaustedly get back home late in the evening and suddenly everybody has to telework. So you go into Tokyo electronics store, there's a whole corner telework equipment. And so everybody's kind of setting this up and, um, and companies are changing their mindset. And the new Japan companies are indeed much quicker at this and uh, better equipped to do this because they have already changed some of their processes and uh, made room for work from home. The old Japan places have a much harder time. And uh, interestingly, in Japan, that always includes the government because the government people still have to go to the office because it is it's considered their duty and obligation as government officials that they have to be there personally. So that's actually, that mindset is still one of the challenges. Uh, but definitely we see a lot of very interesting changes. And I'm actually working on uh, with a co-author on some of these questions on how um, this, this moment will actually affect the way Japan thinks about work. Definitely. And, and we too, by the way, here, right? And how we think about teaching and, and communication and, and, and these things. Yeah. The universities, for those of you who are not in the university directly, of course, we've been spending a tremendous amount of time trying to figure out these issues at, at GPS as well, making sure that we'll st we're still providing quality education in this context. Let me turn to the next question and try to get through as many as we can. Why is Taiwan projected to experience such a sharp hit to economic growth? I confess I was a little surprised by that as well, to see that the IMF projections had Taiwan as, as uh, seeing a larger hit than, than, uh, than Korea. I think it may have to do in part with the relationship with China, because this is overlaid at this juncture with a pretty tense moment in cross-strait relations. Um, Tsai Ing-wen was reelected. She's from the DPP. 
uh, which is, uh, you know, the party which has a, a more pro-Taiwan or not Taiwan independence, but leaning more in the direction of greater independence from the mainland, ironically, than the KMT. And relations across the strait have been tense. Even prior to the travel shutdowns, uh, China had uh, attempted to uh, control tourism in a way that looked very much like a sanction. Uh, and so it's possible that uh, the headwinds that the Taiwanese economy are going to face are not only from the shutdown of demand in these global production networks. For example, Taiwan's very specialized in the production of semiconductors, for example, and other parts of the, those global supply chains but also from the fact that there look like there might be some strains in cross-strait relations. And the two economies are very integrated. Um, you know, on any given day, I think we're at three or 400,000 Taiwanese that are on the mainland. And those cross-strait relations are very important for uh, not only the uh, manufacturing sector, but for the service sector in Taiwan. Uh, Ulrika, do you want to add in? Could I just um, uh, add my two cents here? Uh, I'm not sure those data, those prog prognoses will hold. And there is a more optimistic view here that could be had. Um, and that is that uh, there is this whole in, uh, very complicated supply chain now going on in Northeast Asia, where um, if you look at the trade, the trade triangle there, uh, China and Japan are roughly equal, but um, South Korea and Taiwan actually have a trade deficit with Japan, and China has a trade deficit with South Korea and Taiwan. And what's happening there is that Japanese companies are making very advanced chemicals, uh, films that go into computer screens and parts that go into parts that then become go to assembly in, in China. So what's happening there is that this is all very interconnected. And it is quite possible that once we get sort of into a new normal and consumption picks back up, that the entire Asian, especially the Northeast Asian supply chain, will will start, you know, uh, ready to rumble, will get going again. Uh, in lockstep, actually. So I've, I found these uh, differentials very difficult to understand because I think that these these economies are much more tied to each other. I don't I don't see how Japan could tank like that, and and Korea could not. I, I just don't see how that would happen. That certainly underlines the broader uncertainty in all of this data. And the IMF and the WTO have been very clear that these projections are surrounded by these very large confidence intervals. Let me try to get two more questions into Rich because we're, we're coming down. So Rich, I'm gonna ask both of these at the same time. They're very divergent questions, but maybe you can speak to each. The first is what sort of exposure will the Asian economies face when the pandemic spreads throughout Africa? And um, I think uh, I'd like to kind of repose that question, which is what can Africa learn from India in a way? Because you obviously have pockets of poverty in India that are similar to those seen on the continent. Um, so it's not just the knock-on from the crisis hitting Africa, it's also how Africa can and will respond once, uh, once COVID hits them. Why don't, why don't you take that and then I'll come back to one more question about uh, supply chains. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think we've seen over the years Asia become more intertwined with Africa uh, from a trade perspective, security perspective, people to people, a lot of uh, workers going back and forth. 
Um, but I, I don't know that it's significant enough that it'll have an economic kind of impact on, on Asia, to be fair. I just think there's not enough um, uh, two-way trade or investment between Africa and, and parts of Asia. Um, now, that's obviously different as you shift across into the Gulf and, and into the uh, uh, kind of Gulf region. But, you know, if I guess if I'm in Africa and I'm thinking about the conditions in India where you do have very densely populated uh, cities, you have a lot of people living in tough conditions on the economic edge, um, but you also have these incredibly tough um, containment steps that the government has taken. I think, I think that's the direction you would have to go is, is you look at what has worked, uh, at least thus far. And I say thus far, things could change. We could be here a week from now and the numbers could be totally different with additional testing. But thus far, those very strong centralized measures have worked. And I think that's one of the key lessons. Right. Okay, I'm going to pose the last question uh, from our own Peter Gerbich, the founding dean of GPS. And he raises a question, which I'll just paraphrase uh, quickly, which is, we've talked about the supply chain question, but we haven't talked about the supply chain question with respect to critical medical supply in particular. And uh, I was just looking at some data today that there have been an increase in export controls in a number of countries, um, both the advanced industrial states and China, uh, Korea for that matter, uh, on uh, personal protective equipment, masks, and so on. Um, and that's related to the question of stockpiling and risk mitigation looking forward. Rich, why don't you um, finish off by reflecting on that set of issues? Because I think this is, even though this is a small share of world output, it could be a broader trend towards looking at these global supply chains as involving more risk than countries may want to take on. Yeah, and, and thank you. And very much a real-life example with regard to India. President Trump had to call Prime Minister Modi, ask for Prime Minister Modi's kind of approval to lift the export restrictions on the anti-malaria drug that President Trump has been so enthused about. Uh, it turns out uh, the prime minister agreed with that, largely because India doesn't have a significant number of cases. And of course, the results on the drug have, have yet to be proven. But that's that's a real life example of where significant, uh, important pharmaceutical product uh, is made in India. We relied on India for it. And, it. and if India maintained those export controls, we would be in we would be in trouble. That's why when, when earlier when I were referred to kind of what is a strategic good, I think that discussion is going to change now. Remember, we, we had a strategic petroleum reserve. We still do. We treated steel as a strategic asset of the United States. Obviously, our defense industry is a strategic asset. And we protect it. We, do, we mandate that it is made and produced in the United States in most cases. I think you're going to see uh, ventilators, personal protective gear, testing kits, certain uh, key pharmaceutical elements. I, I suspect there are going to be mandates, not only if, you, if not to make it in the United States, to have adequate volumes in the United States. I think that's where, that's, I think that's where this debate is headed. Great. Well, listen, I, I do have one more question, Wendy. I know you want to wrap us up, but I have a former student who's asking a question about North Korea. So let me just say something briefly on that. If any of you are interested, I've written a post on this for the Korea Economic Institute looking at this. The main issue with North Korea at this juncture, in my view, is not just on the 
internal front, it's this broader question of sanctions relief and the question of getting adequate and, and timely exemptions for uh, the import of needed medical equipment. And so uh, the United States quietly actually has been allowing those exemptions to go through the sanctions exemptions process at the UN Security Council. I think that's very positive, despite some of the bombastic language, just quietly allowing things in. But I think the big debate about North Korea going forward is going to be, number one, we don't know anything. And number two, you know, can they get what they need? You know, is this a country which, despite the missile tests and so on, is seen as a place which does need international assistance. With that, Wendy, I think I'll turn it over to you and you can wrap up for us. Great, thank you so much, Steph. On behalf of everyone on the line, please allow me to extend my deepest thanks for you all taking time to be here today. Um, Your insights are are very uh, interesting and helpful as we try to, to make sense of everything that's happening in this crazy time, so thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.